This week, Revlon files for Chapter 11, Deteriorating Fundamentals and Endopharmaceutical Signal Increased Risk of Near-Term Restructuring, Altera Infrastructure's August 2021 Up-Tier Exchange and Maybe Challenge and Potential Chapter 11 Filing, TBC Group Files First Plan of Reorganization. For this week's Deep Dive, Julian will be speaking with Aton Goldberg, a senior finance attorney who recently joined Proskauer's private credit group. Aton and Julian reflect on Aton's experience practicing in the worlds of both syndicated lending and private credit, which despite historically serving different segments of the market, have converged in recent years as both types of lenders are increasingly competing for the same large cap deals. It's Friday, June 17th. Revlon, the Ron Perelman-owned cosmetic company with a portfolio of more than 20 key beauty brands, including Revlon and Elizabeth Arden, and several affiliates filed petitions on Wednesday, June 15th, seeking to pursue a restructuring. Debtors filed without a restructuring support agreement. The Revlon debtors have obtained commitments from the Brand Co. and ABL lenders agreeing to provide dip financing in the form of a $400 million ABL facility and a $575 million term loan facility with an incremental uncommitted facility in the amount of $450 million, which may only be used to refinance or replace the dip ABL facility or the U.S. ABL facility. Revlon stated that it filed for Chapter 11 in the face of a crisis caused by dwindling liquidity resulting from supply chain and manufacturing challenges in spring 2022. According to the first declaration of Chief Restructuring Officer Robert Caruso of Alvarez and Marcel, Revlon's business was also still suffering from the impact of the COVID-19 pandemic starting in 2020, as well as the additional uncertainty caused by a critical February 2021 ruling from U.S. District Judge Jesse Furman, which held that 2016 term lenders who received over $500 million of mistaken transfers from terminal agent Citibank may keep the funds. Crusoe stated that Judge Furman's decision throws into question who holds over 50% of the 2016 term loans, and that he expects that uncertainty to persist until the Second Circuit issues a ruling in Citibank's appeal. On an interim basis, the Revlon debtors seek authorization to access $375 million from the dip term lenders, of which $300 million would be used for critical vendors and working capital, and $75 million to refinance the foreign ABL. According to the first day declaration, Branco lenders holding approximately 87% of the Branco facilities have agreed to fund the $575 million dip facility. The debtors stress that they continue to engage with the lender groups in good faith. The Chapter 11 filing will allow Revlon to strategically reorganize its legacy capital structure and improve its long-term outlook, according to the company's press release. At Revlon's first day hearing, which was continued on Friday, June 17th, Alice Eden of Paul Weiss for the debtors stated that the debtors have consensus of all our secured parties to the dip financing. However, in continuing the hearing, Judge David S. Jones said he wants to do as little as possible on the first day of the cases, knowing that he himself did not have an opportunity to thoroughly review the dip-related documents and that he wished to provide all parties with due process. The dip milestone requires the debtors' entry into RSA for an acceptable plan of reorganization by November 1st and the filing of the plan by November 30th. Debtors also have a deadline of April 1st, 2023 to achieve plan confirmation. Reorg this week undertook an analysis of the positioning of various stakeholders in endopharmaceuticals after a deterioration of the company's fundamentals has apparently accelerated the prospects of a near-term restructuring. The company's first quarter results and second quarter guidance, in which it disclosed a 30.4% year-over-year decline in first quarter Vasistrix sales and said that sales of the product would fall by about 85% sequentially, appear to have substantially changed the way the market is evaluating a potential restructuring of the company. Previously, market participants have been quick to paint comparisons between Endo and Mallinckrodt, suggesting that a form of structured settlement for opioid claimants in an Endo Chapter 11 scenario is the appropriate strategy to address opioid claims. However, the degradation of Endo's vasostrict business and resultant impact on estimated valuations for Endo have led market participants to focus more on implied recoveries for first lien creditors as the fulcrum security in a hypothetical Chapter 11 filing, and the potential for second lien creditors to attempt a valuation fight in order to recoup some form of recovery. 
While various sources have suggested that opioid claimants will be able to negotiate some quantum of recovery in Chapter 11, any such recovery appears to be predicated on addressing the holdup value that opioid claimants could exert on the process. To access our analysis of endopharmaceuticals, please reach out to a reorg representative. Altera Infrastructure's August 2021 up-tier notes exchange with private equity sponsor Brookfield Business Partners could face challenges from unsecured creditors and potential Chapter 11 filing. The company and its creditors have engaged restructuring advisors and unsecured bondholders are reportedly considering their options for attacking the deal, which could also draw challenges from an official committee of unsecured creditors. In August 2021, Brookfield, the company's majority shareholder, swapped about $700 million in unsecured debt, including about $400 million, $415 million of 8.5% notes due 2023, for the same amount of new secured notes jumping ahead of about 289 million remaining 8.5% unsecured notes. In addition to gaining secured status, Brookfield also moved structurally senior to the 8.5% notes issued by parent company Altera Infrastructure LP and Altera Infrastructure Finance Corp. As the new secured pick notes are issued by the parent's wholly owned subsidiary Altera Infrastructure Holdings LLC or Holdco with a guarantee from the parent. According to the company, the Brookfield exchange is part of the company's efforts to improve liquidity and extend near-term debt maturities. If the Brookfield maturity extension and reduced interest expense as a result of the change from cash to pick interest on the Brookfield debt are insufficient to stave off a Chapter 11 filing, the Brookfield exchange is likely to be hotly contested in bankruptcy court. REORG this week examined some of the potential claims that the unsecured bondholders and a UCC could bring to challenge the transaction, including estate-held fraudulent transfer and preference actions and equitable subordination claims, as well as possible defenses and surveys how similar disputes have played out in recent Chapter 11 cases. On Thursday, TPC Group filed their first plan of reorganization and disclosure statement, which are consistent with their pre-petition restructuring support agreement. The plan is supported by holders of approximately 100% of the term loan dip claims, 88% of the 10.875% primary notes, and 78% of the Class 3 10.5 notes by amount, as well as the supporting sponsors who collectively hold in the aggregate approximately 99% of the Class 8 existing holdings interests. The case is not yet fully consensual, with an ad hoc crew of non-consenting minority 10.5% note holders led by Bayside Capital and Cerebrus contesting the debtor's dip proposal and disputing the priority of the priming 10.875% notes held by the dip lenders. The plan generally provides for a balance sheet restructuring and resolution of legacy liabilities. According to the press release that accompanied the Chapter 11 filing, the debtors expect to resolve all tort liabilities arising from the Port Nature's facility incident through the plan. According to the debtors, the company is conducting ongoing discussions with a steering committee of law firms representing claimants asserting claims arising from the 2019 Port Nature's explosion on a potential settlement to secure the claimant's support for the plan. According to the debtors, the plan would eliminate the vast majority of the company's funded debt and other claims from its balance sheet and provide for capital infusion, including through the new money terminal and revolving debt financing and equity rights offering hold coat pick notes and secured exit notes. Top bird stories this week included Diebold Nixdorf can significant unencumbered assets overcome massive maturity wall. Hearing on Cypress Mines preliminary injunction request for parents set for June 23rd, debtor expects no contest. Supreme Court summarily remands 10th Circuit decision on U.S. trustee fee hike dispute in light of Siegel v. Fitzgerald decision finding quarterly fee legislation violated uniformly requirement of Constitution's bankruptcy clause. DBMP non-debtor affiliates, parents, say divisional merger allocation of assets is not a debtor transfer that asbestos claimants can avoid in a fraudulent transfer suit. And now here's Kathy from Los Angeles with the week ahead. Hello, this is Kathy Todd from Los Angeles on this Friday, June 17th. Here's the forecast for the week ahead. On Tuesday, June 21st, the Zohar debtors will be in court to seek confirmation of their 
third amended liquidating plan, which faces a single objection filed by Lynn Tilton's patriarch entities. If confirmed, the Zohar Fund's assets, including portfolio holdings and litigation claims against Tilton and the patriarch entities, would be transferred free and clear to asset recovery entities and a litigation trust for the benefit of note holders and bond insurer MBIA. On Wednesday, June 22nd, post-trial final arguments are slated in the litigation between the Asbestos Personal Injury Trust, established in the North American Refactories Company's Chapter 11 case, and Honeywell, over whether Honeywell is meeting its evergreen obligations to fund asbestos claims. Just Energy will also be in court on Wednesday, June 22nd, to seek bankruptcy court recognition of its solicitation process in its Canadian insolvency proceedings, as well as for authority to adjudicate Storm URI-related claims in the bankruptcy court. On Thursday, June 23rd, the LADAM Airlines debtors will ask for approval of approximately $3.9 billion in financing facilities to repay their existing revolving dip facility to fund their Chapter 11 cases until emergence and otherwise to put into place exit financing. The debtors say they have a clear path to emerge in the second half of 2022, assuming the court confirms their plan. The confirmation hearing concluded in late May, with Judge James Garrity taking the matter under advisement. On Friday, June 24th, there will be an exclusivity fight in Ruby Pipeline. The Natural Gas Pipeline Company will ask for a 180-day extension of its planned filing and solicitation periods to January 25th and March 27th of next year, respectively. On the other hand, the UCC, joined by note holders, seeks to terminate the debtor's exclusivity or in the alternative to have a Chapter 11 trustee appointed. The UCC has accused the company's equity sponsors of filing the Chapter 11 case to delay and obstruct what the UCC has called their day of reckoning with the note holders. As for earnings, Rite Aid will report its earnings on Thursday. June 23rd. That's it for me as we head into this holiday weekend of Juneteenth, which commemorates the end of slavery in the United States and became a federal holiday just a year ago. The June 19th celebration, originating in Galveston, Texas, honors the anniversary of General Order No. 3 issued by Union Army General Gordon Granger upon arriving in Galveston to announce and enforce the Emancipation Proclamation issued two years prior and marked the end of slavery in Texas. Texas was the last state of the Confederacy with institutional slavery. Take some time to celebrate by attending a Juneteenth food fair or festival, checking out an exhibit hosted by your local museum, or supporting Black-owned businesses. Now back to you in New York. And next up, our senior governance analyst Julian Bullon speaks with Eitan Goldberg, a special finance counsel with Proskauer's private credit group, about his experience advising clients in both syndicated lending and private credit transactions, including how competition between syndicated lenders and private creditors has evolved in recent years. Thanks, David. For this week's deep dive, I'm joined by Eitan Goldberg, who is a special counsel in the private credit practice at the law firm Proskauer Rose. I first met Eitan when we were both associates at Davis Polk and Wardwell. And although his resume more than speaks for itself, I will add from personal experience that he is a brilliant attorney uh, and also a pleasure to work with. Uh, Eitan, welcome. We're thrilled to have you on the podcast today. Thanks, Julian. Uh, Great to be here. Uh, I know you you reached out to me, I think, within hours of uh, when I had updated my LinkedIn profile, uh, mentioning that I had joined Proskauer's private credit group, which I was very excited about. And so I, I really do appreciate this opportunity to talk. Of course. Uh, yes, I, I found that when uh, people switch law firms, uh, especially into a counselor partnership role, it's, it's a really great uh, chance to sort of get their thoughts on uh, where things are going in, uh, in both the industry and in their legal practice. So thanks, uh, thanks again for uh, for coming on. With that said, why don't you start by telling us about your background? So, like I said, I, I was attracted to Proskauer's private credit group. I think it has a, a reputation both here and abroad. 
as being the largest direct lender uh, lender side private credit practice of its kind. Um, and having worked on mostly syndicated uh, leverage deals when I initially started and seeing the market evolve in the last number of years to where a number of those opportunities were going to direct lenders in the market, um, that was sort of where my head was at. And so Proskauer was a great opportunity uh, to join and as well as expand their presence here in South Florida, where I'm located. So you mentioned your your origins in the syndicated lending space. Uh, I, I imagine as private credit continues to grow, it's going to also continue to attract more and more lawyers who have a background in syndicated lending, uh, because that's where you know a lot of the deal flow was, you know, for the last several years. I, I'm interested in hearing a bit more about your like the evolution of your your practice and how you ended up making the decision uh, to move from syndicated lending into private credit. Yeah. So. I had the benefit of seeing syndicated lending both from the lender side as well as the borrower side of transactions. And while on the borrower side, I learned a fair amount of of terms that you might say are driven by creative lawyers uh, looking to structure the the latest deal with with, uh, optimum flexibility, um, as well as from the lender side And, and what you see a fair amount of is that credit terms from the lender side are often driven by what the market can accommodate. And and the question is really, can we take this to market? Can we get this off our balance sheet uh, and sell it? And so the, the, the negotiation at an initial stage of committing to an acquisition financing, uh, there's a lot of talk around what you need in so-called flex terms, sort of, you know, flexibility to change the deal as the market dictates, whether in pricing, other economic terms, tightening flexibility for the company. Um, and then over time, as I was in you know, those roles, I saw that a fair number of those opportunities were being, you know, shopped out to both a syndicated side, as well as a direct lender competing for the same credit. And um, what, what I enjoyed about being on the private credit side of things is that um, they, they tend to get in at the, at the starting point to compete uh, for that transaction. And then we'll stay with the credit um, over time through upsizes, through amendments, um, with equity co-invests. And so uh, it's very much you know, a long-term sort of relationship, even on a single credit versus just, you know, committing at the front end and and being able to market it. Um, You know, anecdotally, I will say that, um, you know, even where private credit may have historically had higher pricing, and that was sort of the reputation it had, um, private equity sponsors still went the private credit route because of deal certainty. That's interesting. Uh, what you said specifically about the uh, the level of involvement that private creditors might have in a deal relative to their uh, syndicated lending uh, counterparts. I, I imagine that you, um, by working with those kinds of creditors who are engaged in a bit more of um, almost uh, 
looking at a deal with a sort of a private equity investor hat on to a certain extent. I, I imagine you get a, a pretty uh, robust business education from that. You know, I, I say that when I first started as uh, out of law school, but now it's uh, nearly 10 years ago, and I, and I knew I wanted to do transactional work and, and I gravitated towards lending. And at the time, I think it was called the credit practice. My, my thinking at the time was that this would be a fairly simple thing to do, right? What, what is a loan after all? It's a, an amount of money you borrow for a term with a maturity date, maybe an amortization schedule. Um, and you're done, right? You have an interest rate and, and that's it. <laughs> but, but as, as uh, I quickly learned and, and we worked alongside, uh, we worked together on a number of these transactions um, as, as junior attorneys. There's, there's a lot more to it and um, sort of dictating the uh, business decisions in many respects of a company for, you know, three, five, seven years um, is, is sort of what kept me in it uh, and, uh, and learning, you know, the, those elements of the business. And, and I agree with you, there's, there's a fair amount of, of, uh, of learning curve on the business side as well. So you mentioned uh, one of the reasons why uh, private equity sponsors might be interested in going the private credit route, which was deal certainty um, and, and you know basically certainty of execution because you're eliminating the marketing period and you're eliminating um, negotiations around market flex. What are some other reasons why a borrower or their sponsor might find uh, private credit to be an attractive alternative to a syndicated loan? Um, so... I will say that you've seen a lot of deals in the last year or two in the tech, in the healthcare space, um, and in other businesses that are acquisitive in nature. And so one of the common features that a direct lender can bring to the table that you don't see as commonly in syndicated deals is a committed delayed draw term loan. In other words, a, a committed portion of loans that are available to be drawn at some point after the initial closing date. And those are usually used to finance you know, further acquisitions. So in addition to flexibility that there might be under the document to go out to lenders and raise incremental debt, which would have to be committed by those lenders at the time of the relevant acquisition and you know, subject to whatever market conditions are then, um, direct lenders are able to offer committed financing for future acquisitions. Um, in the lifeline of a company. So that's that's one feature. Um, and so that gives them access to liquidity for tack on acquisitions, investments, and their, their working capital and other liquidity needs in the future. Um, the uh, ability to work with a smaller group of lenders is attractive, I think, um, you know, where you need to quickly execute amendments or waivers in the future to a document it's a lot easier to go out to, you know, two, three, and in some cases, just one lender who who will be a good business partner to work with versus having to go out to a syndicate um, of, of, of varied lenders with varied interests. Um, and then I think the, the headline really is actually, you know, geopolitical resilience. Um, and this has really come into focus in the last few months that, to the extent geopolitical or economic conditions create turbulence in the credit markets, um, deal flow, is, 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 there still is a lot of resilience in, um, in private credit funds. 
Um, they have already been funded and they are looking for deals to do and new credit funds are being raised every day. So access to capital um, and, and the certainty of that, I think is certainly um, important. And then finally, I would say that, you know, pricing has become more competitive. Historically, um, private credit was thought of as sort of a more strategic type of credit for, for you know, credits that might not have been as desirable in the syndicated world. But, and pricing reflected that, um, it was higher. And, and now pricing has become uh, competitive with, uh, with, syndicated, uh, with syndicated deals. Uh, and then finally, I would say that private credit is interested in other entry points to a company's capital structure. So you'll see equity co-invest, you'll see preferred debt at the holdings level. Um, and that can also be attractive to a company looking for capital. Your point about uh, private credit uh, being a resilient alternative um, in, in the face of you know, geopolitical or economic turbulence is, is interesting. Uh, we, we were talking the other day about how um, some of our professional connections in debt capital markets and also in the sort of traditional syndicated lending space are, are a little slow right now. Um, but, but your practice in private credit generally seems to be going gangbusters, uh, which, um, which is very interesting to me because it seems like there's still a lot of appetite to, to lend even into this um, pretty, uh, well, well, pretty shock, these pretty shocking market conditions. Yeah. Yeah, I, I think that's, that's absolutely right. Um, and I've seen deals recently where, um, where, where a private equity sponsor very quickly pivoted from what they thought would be, you know, they would go out to, to a number of banks uh, for a syndicated deal and, and decided for deal certainty. Um, they, you know, they had a deal they wanted to get done uh, in this market. And so they, they came to private credit. Thanks, Eitan. So I'd like to focus now on the the nature of the competition between uh, private credit and and syndicated lending, uh, and specifically how that competition has evolved over the years. From my perspective, when I when I was doing lending work uh, as a junior associate, I think I maybe was involved in in a handful of I guess you would call them private credit deals, uh, but those deals were uh, more or less limited to middle market direct lending, uh, the types of deals that may have been too small to be attractive to a, to a large uh, bank syndicate. But today, private creditors are competing directly with syndicated lenders for multi-billion dollar deals. Uh, can you tell us a little bit about you know, what's changed uh, in, in the environment to, to allow that sort of competition? Yeah, I would say that perhaps what, what has driven that, that growth um, is the increasing amount of dry powder that private credit funds have. So they have capital to deploy, and so they're looking for deals to do it in. And, um, and so it's not uncommon, like you said, to see billion dollar plus unit tranche facilities, unit tranche being credit facilities, rather than having a first lien tranche of debt and a second lien, you have a single first lien uh, term loan in the structure. And so that was originally that unit tranche structure was originally, like you said, aimed at the middle market, smaller deals. Um, and now it's, uh, it, it has infiltrated larger, um, larger deals. And then 
on top of that, and, and perhaps also driven by the demand um, in, in raising and credit funds, is private credit funds are offering more competitive terms. Um, and, and that seems to correlate with the expansion of um, private equity activity in the last 10 years. You see more private credit funds um, being raised. And so, um, and, and so we, we can get into a bit you know, how private credit funds have become more competitive in the last 10 years in deal terms. Um, start off with, I, I think, one, one term that, that market, the market focuses on is leverage, right? The, the, the relationship between a company's uh, debt for borrowed money and its adjusted earnings. You know, historically, um, private credit was was a place where you know you had lower um, leverage deals, and and now you're seeing that edge higher and competitive with the the syndicated world. I think that um, you take, for example, one one common term that you see now more in private credit than you did historically is so so called covenant light deals. Um, covenant light meaning that that governor on a company's leverage relative to its earnings is only only runs in favor of the revolving facility not in favor of the term lenders and it's only tested on a quarterly basis um, historically there would have been um, a a maintenance covenant that ran to the benefit of all lenders um, and now to be competitive i think with the syndicated world much more common to see um, the so-called covenant light deals um, I will say anecdotally, at the beginning of the pandemic, I had I was working on the borrower side of a transaction in the transportation sector that was suffering, and this was in early days, March, April of 2020, and it saw that it was not going to to be able to satisfy its financial covenant based on you know, current projections into the remaining portion of 2020 with the travel all but ground to a halt, and. Um, the private equity sponsor actually came in, um, infused cash into the company, which it used to pay down its revolving facility, terminate its revolving facility, and there was no longer a financial covenant. Um, that's probably an extreme example, um, but uh, you know, I, I think that that's you know one illustration of uh, of how those those covenants work. Um, you also see. Uh, you know, some deals, even if they're not covenant light, they're covenant loose, meaning that the cushion that the company has relative to its model for projected growth over the year is greater. So there's more leeway and less likelihood of tripping that financial covenant. So instead of maybe 30 or 35 percent cushion to its model, you'll see a 40 percent cushion. Um, and then finally, you know, I, I'd say that you see uh, a lot more flexibility uh, being offered. The company. So, whereas you know a company might have, may have been able to make investments, incur debt, make dividends uh, using so-called baskets that were based on dollar amounts, fixed figures, those um, across the board, even on smaller uh, middle market deals now, will all have an EBITDA grower, right? Based on the assumption that a company's earnings will grow over time, those baskets will grow as as EBITDA also grows. Um, and then, you know, although there's definitely a focus still on um, uh, um, you know, so, so liability management um, and leakage 
leakages. I think the, the hot term, both in the syndicated world and in the private credit world, there's, there's certainly you know, concern around you know, collateral being diluted or you know, being, being used for other credits that may structurally you know, subordinate your credit. Um, there are other ways, uh, such as, for instance, abilities to auto-cure, ability to auto-cure uh, an event of default um, that private equity sponsors and their counsel have pushed for. Um, I think, you know, particularly during the pandemic, they realized they needed the flexibility to be able to, to, to go back and fix um, uh, events of default that may or may not have occurred. And, uh, and so those have infiltrated documents as well. And, and in addition to uh, all of these terms, which are sort of, I guess, I wouldn't say mimicking the syndicated lending market, but um, to an extent mirroring it uh, in terms of their flexibility, uh, this flexibility is driven by the, the, the creditor's risk appetite and not what, uh, what will clear the market. I, I suppose those two things are, are related to some extent, but, um, but one, creditor's, one creditor may have a very different view of the business than, uh, than a syndicate of creditors uh, who are uh, participating in a sort of consensus process, right? That's right. Um, and that's, that's illustrated, I think, when you get in on a private credit deal, the level of diligence. Um, and time that they'll spend around a deal, considering it before you know deciding to commit financing, um, is extensive. So, what have syndicate presumably syndicated lenders are aware now of of this uh, of this new kid on the block uh, who is competing for their deals? Um, and I assume that they're not just taking this new competition lying down. What uh, what if syndicate what have syndicated lenders done uh, specifically in terms of uh, their marketing process or their documentation to uh, to compete with private credit? Yeah, so so with the growth of billion dollar plus unit tranche facilities by private credit, um, there have been stories uh, in the last couple of months around uh, banks responding with the so-called public unit tranche option. Uh, where they will market a, a single unit tranche facility, um, in some cases successfully. Um, I think that, you know, looking at those, it's important to consider how those deals are initially launched or how they're initially committed. So a public deal may initially be launched as a committed first lien and second lien facility with the expectation that the second lien would be you know, privately placed by the sponsor among a few private lenders, um, but the first lien would, would be marketed ordinary course. Um, and, but in, in those cases you know, that, that have been reported, the first lien was so heavily oversubscribed that the sponsor drops the second lien and decides to pursue a unitronch instead. Um, and so in, in some of those cases that resulted in higher leverage. Um, and so, you know, I think there was a story about one that closed at seven and three quarters uh, leverage. Um, that's not something that you commonly see in, uh, in broadly syndicated deals. And, and, you know, and so the, the sponsor may save on interest costs, right? Because the, the cost of unit tranches lower than the blended cost of a first lien and second lien in some cases. Um, and so I, I think that's one way that it's trying to respond. 
um, on on terms. The uh, the other way, you know, that private credit I think still you know retains its advantage is that in all of those examples that I just gave of you know first things oversubscribed and changing the structure, the benefit of a private credit deal would have been that you had certainty when you started. Um, and knew you were going to get the deal done. And so that's all fine and well in a market where there's a lot of you know, over demand um, for, for, for a deal, but where you don't know what the credit markets are gonna look like when you go to market, um, that's, uh, that's something I think that would give uh, sponsors some pause. Right, I see. So in this, in this case that we've been discussing, the Unitranche was, uh, uh, was, was a pivot from an original first lien, second lien structure. Whereas uh, in, in most cases, I suppose a borrower would prefer to know what the structure would be from the start and then carry it through to closing. Um, so um, yeah, for the benefit of deal certainty. Right, right. So, and, and just to be clear then how this, um, how this Unitron structure actually competes with private credit, when you have a, a, a public unit tranche with blended economics, you're replacing what would have been a first lien, second lien structure where, the, where, where essentially the second lien would have been privately placed with probably an alternative lender, right? That's right, often directly by the sponsor. Right. So that, that, that raises an interesting point then, if this, um, if this pivot is something that's happening um, in, in with, with multi-billion dollar deals where you have a first lien that is unexpectedly oversubscribed, uh, does that suggest some kind of trend that we're going to be seeing more of these kinds of public unit tranches uh, going forward? Um, I don't know if I would call it a trend just yet. Um, I think it, it will ultimately depend on markets. You know, what, one question I have is, are regulated banks getting more comfortable marketing higher leverage deals uh, without concern for regulatory scrutiny. That's possible. Um, you know, the leverage guidelines that came out after the financial crisis uh, in 2013 sort of directed you know, many, many syndicated deals towards a lower leverage. I don't think those are necessarily you know, binding uh, rules. So, you know, in a circumstance where a deal at least is initially launched with lower leverage as a first lane, second lane, um, you know, maybe they'll pivot, but whether they'd come out in the first instance with a higher leverage deal, I guess we'll see. Um, and then the other question is whether demand from CLOs will continue to be there at those higher levels. And there are signs um, that maybe it's not, uh, um, you know, or that they may require other compromises from the sponsor, such as you know, a, a, a more significant, uh, larger equity check into the business to give investors comfort um, with the change to, to higher leverage. Um, and then finally, and I think we, we've probably touched on this a few times, and it's sort of the, the term of the day, um, market volatility, right? So it's all great when the market's great, but um, if there's geopolitical uncertainty, Federal Reserve uh, interest rate policy changes are, are occurring um, and other forces on the market. Um, all of those things put pressure on the, on the leverage loan uh, market. And there, there are signs that in 2022, relative to 2021, uh, at least year to date, 
leverage loan issuance is lower uh, than it was. So all that being said, I, I, I don't, it's not entirely clear to me that public unit tranche is, is here to stay or is going to displace um, private credit, which you know, shows every sign of, of growing. Well, Eitan, uh, thank you again for joining us today and sharing your views on the world of private credit. Uh, it's one that's very interesting, but also I think a bit opaque and a bit misunderstood. Uh, and, and we're thrilled that you were able to come on and, uh, and shed some light on it. Uh, I, I wish you the best of luck in your new role. And uh, we hope to have you back on the podcast again soon. Thanks, Julian. Great to be here. Thank you again for listening to this Rear Weekly Review. You can find all our podcasts on the rear.com webinars and podcast page as well as Spotify, iTunes, SoundCloud, and Amazon. Hope your families are healthy and safe. Have a great weekend. We'll see you next Friday.